0: A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org.
1: Okay, before you can understand how Bob's sister became the talk of the third grade and the big day that that led to that people still remember, I need to explain first that Bob's sister is a drawing. The teacher in this third grade class, Mr. Ablau, spotted it one day while teaching math. He saw one of the students, Antonio working on a picture.
2: I went over to him and said, put the picture away. I um, probably did that two or three times. And then the fourth time I went over and I just took the picture mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. and said, uh, pay attention, it's math class. And I put it on my desk. He came up right before recess and was like, can I have my picture back? And I was like, what is this picture of anyways? And he said, it's Bob's sister. And, I th- and I'm like, who's Bob's sister? Turns out Bob's sister is a minion, which... Um, I don't even think Bob's sister exists in the Minion world. You're saying um, you're saying
1: the Minions like from from the movie Despicable
2: Me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he
1: just invented like a sister character for Bob. Yeah, apparently. Mister Bob taped the drawing to the bookshelf behind his desk near a photo of a wolf that was already there. Because it was clear if Antonio kept the drawing, it would continue to be a distraction to him and a couple of his friends, who at that point were the only ones in class who really cared about Bob's sister.
2: And I was like, don't worry. She's not going anywhere. She'll be right here. Anytime you want to see her, she'll be behind me. Because the kids were into the picture of Bob's sister. Yeah. And I didn't really quite understand why. I never investigated why this was, picture was such a big deal. But yeah, they would talk about it. They would go up and look at it. And yeah, it was a thing. Why were you guys so excited about
1: Bob's sister, do you think?
3: I think it's because it was like another distraction in class that people could talk about.
1: Well, that's straightforward enough. There was a this is Dylan. One of Antonio's friends who was into Bob's sister from the start. Describe the drawing.
3: It was just like an octopus, and then it had two eyes, and then tentacles coming out of it.
1: I didn't realize Bob's sister was an
3: octopus? Bob's sister was an octopus.
1: But Bob's a minion.
3: Well, it, it didn't really have anything to do with that.
1: And was he referring to the minion, Bob? or am I just, no, no, he was not. I see. Was it a good drawing?
3: It was, like, an eight-year-old's okay drawing. Like, it wasn't amazing, but it was, like, you knew what it was.
1: This whole question, is it an octopus? Is it a minion? I asked Antonio, who drew Bob's sister, about that. He tended to see Bob's sister as a Pac-Man ghost with big eyes. But he said, and I thought it was surprisingly mature for somebody in elementary school, he thought part of the appeal of Bob's sister was that it was open to interpretation.
3: I, I really don't know what it is. It's, it's a thing. I don't know what it is. It, it, it's, it's lots of different things. You could think of it as a minion that looks weird. You could think of it as a fly guy with no legs. You could think of it as Pac-Man goats with big eyes. It, Bob's sister was different to everybody. We never went with one of them. We just, mm-hmm. like, we didn't say anything. It, it, anyone could believe what they want.
1: But the thing that was key to Bob's sister was Bob's sister wasn't actually anyone's sister.
3: His name was just Bob's sister, no space. That's really funny. (laughs) And we didn't come up with a gender either.
1: So Bob's sister, gender unspecified, lived on the bookshelf near the photo of a wolf until one week when Mr. Ablau went on vacation and the kids had a substitute. When Mr. Ablau came back, Bob's sister was gone, vanished, disappeared, and was all the kids wanted to talk about.
2: This is the point where everybody in class gets very, very interested Bob's sister. There's kind of all this speculation about, like, what happened to Bob's sister. Um, Was she stolen? Was she murdered? Um, (laughs) Did she die? And so I go and, you know, I look a little bit. I looked under the desk. I looked behind the bookshelf. Did you ask the substitute? I did, actually. He had no idea what I was talking about, which was good enough for me.
1: Really, for me, that makes him suspect number one. (laughs) Interesting. There's your guy. Do you not watch any crime drama at all? (laughs) There are all kinds of theories about what happened to Bob's sister. Antonio and Dylan said it was really fun to talk about various abductors, including animals from an alternate universe. But Dylan says the prime suspect for his classmates, that other picture on the bookshelf.
3: They just decided that the wolf ate it. Because it was, like, it was like right like above the wolf.
1: Like the wolf was jealous or something.
3: They didn't really know why. They just, that's what, that's what they said.
1: Who said that?
3: Basically everybody.
1: I mean, he's a wolf. Yeah. The chatter about Bob's sister does not go away, which is funny. But also, you know, Mr. Reblow's got a curriculum to get through.
2: And I'm kind of vaguely annoyed because, you know, there's a lot going on in a school day. And I don't have much time to think about a picture of Bob's sister. But they're kind of pestering me about it. And then one other student... Dylan, actually. Pipes in and says, can we have a funeral for Bob's sister? <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and they're like, well, she died. Something happened. Um, and I'm like, a funeral for Bob's sister, a picture. And I say Yes probably just to get them to stop
1: talking about Bob's sister. But also, this is the kind of teacher he is. He says sometimes it's smart to take some detours, follow things where they lead. And
2: they're like, when? I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know when. Like, <laughs> I don't know when this funeral's going to happen. And they're like, when? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? <laughs> We're going to have a funeral for Bob's sister. And so then finally, I'm like, after the recess on Friday...
1: That was Monday. Rest of the week goes pretty normally. Mr. Roblaus sort of hoped that they would forget about the funeral by the end of the week, but no way. They're murmuring about it, preparing for it, which he has no part of. The eight-year-olds are the ones organizing this and thinking it through. Finally, Friday arrives, the big day, the day of the funeral. Kids come back into the
2: room from recess. They're pretty giddy and pretty excited. So finally I'm like, okay, game on, let's go. Funeral. I have no idea what what is about to transpire. All of a sudden, boom, the tables kind of move out of the way. The leader of the funeral comes up with the stool. Two other students bring two tables and grab the flowers. Apparently, a bunch of girls had been making posters. Mm -hmm. They write Bob's sister's funeral on the board. Dylan's leader of the funeral, and he prepared a eulogy.
1: So did his friend Theo. Dylan gets in front of the class, holding a microphone. Mr. Roblau
2: keeps in the room. The rest of the class is totally on the edge of their seats, just waiting for this kid to to start the funeral. Like, paying more attention to him than they ever pay to me. They're just, like, (laughs) ready for it. Um, He starts out kind of ad-libbing about welcoming everyone, thanking everyone for coming to celebrate the life of Bob's sister. Now...
1: How did you know what to say in a eulogy?
3: We didn't. We just said, like, some things that sounded about right, like something that, like, that you might say at a funeral that might make someone cry.
1: Do you have your eulogy there?
3: Yeah. Take it out? Could you read it? Okay, one sec. And then it sort of, mine also says sort of back and forth, she and he, so, because I didn't really know. Bob's sister was a great person. People thought that Bob was just a drawing on a piece of paper, but I knew he was anything but that. But she is still in here. She made me think I could do things in school. If she was here today, she would say, keep on trying.
1: That's really nice. It sounds like you were trying to be sort of inspiring. Yeah. Had you seen a eulogy in a movie or something that, that you knew nope, what to do? Nope, never. Whoa. Yeah, the other eulogy that Theo wrote, was also really good. I just want to say something about this special person here, Bob's sister. How she was such a good friend to all the potatoes, and especially Mr. Potato Head. Um, potatoes were another fascination in Mr. O'Brow's class that year. What an honor it was to have her with us. God bless her.
2: And then, from the back of the room, Mr. Roblau here's a boy crying. I would say almost wailing, but it was like a real cry. And at first I'm thinking... Oh my God, now they're just turning this into a joke. And then I realized that he's actually seriously crying. Like, this is not a joke cry. Um, And I walk back, I walk back there, and everyone kind of turns back. Everyone's looking at both of us. Um, And so I ask him, I'm like, what's wrong? What's going on? How? Why why are you crying? Uh, And he's like, it's because Bob's sister died. And I was like, it's not about anything else, maybe? Um, And he's like, no, it's Bob's sister's died, and it's just so sad.
1: Mr. Ablau thinks maybe it was really about his dog. The dog that that boy had grown up with had died just two weeks before. His mom had sent an email to let him know. But Mr. Ablau's really not sure. It ate you plenty old enough to catch a glimpse of what death means.
2: And then I look up, and then the whole kind of feel of the classroom has changed. It's gone from kind of giddy excitement. This is a fun thing to half the class is nervously laughing. And the other half looks like they're on the verge of tears. Like there's about three girls that are like kind of really sad. And I was like, oh no, what have I created? Like this was, this was reaching an emotional level that I actually had never experienced before. And I've been teaching for about 15 years um and i'd never felt kind of this not that it was getting out of control but it was it was leading to something that i didn't know how it was gonna end honestly like i don't know what's gonna happen next like if three other kids start crying i don't know how to handle the situation right like I'd, i'd never experienced kind of that in a classroom
1: it's so interesting it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like it's like they were playing around with I don't know like a, with a Ouija board and joking around and suddenly they accidentally summoned a demon into the room. Yeah. In a way and for me that I was I was right there on the Ouija board with them. And so, and so this monster's in the room you've unleashed this
2: like really like kind of a primal force like this grief, right? This yeah, grief, death. Mhm. And uh I mean one of the really neat things about third grade is it's I mean, there's a saying, you, they stop uh, learning to read and are um, reading to learn. So it's like, the, it's an age where their world gets a lot bigger. They kind of are experiencing real things. And I think a funeral is one of those things. Like, they probably all heard of a funeral. They read them in books, but m- most of them probably hadn't been to one and didn't know what that felt like.
1: And Mr. O'Blow felt responsible to help them through this new experience like he had lots of others that year. So he took control of the room, back from the kids, and addressed them all. I was like,
2: well, funerals are kind of serious. Sometimes when you go to a funeral, it's very sad because you're missing the person that's uh, moved on, and sometimes it reminds you of other people who have moved on, um, and it's important to remember those people, and it's important to be sad. And this is the end of the funeral.
1: Which worked. Everybody snapped out of it. The demon left the room. Next was free time, which they all enjoy, and everything was fine. But at the end of the school year, when the class stood in a circle and each kid named something that they remembered and liked from third grade, a couple of the kids said Bob's sister's funeral. It was a moment for Mr. Abbao, too. Sometimes you know you're joking around and it's all light and fun and trying something you've never done before, and some bigger subterranean force gets unleashed. That's what our show is going to be about today. Those moments when you get a glimpse of all that feeling that's there, down below, hidden from sight. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ara Glass. Stay with us. Back one. Through the eye of a needle. So let's uh, move now from young people contemplating death to the exact opposite. Older people realizing their lives are saved and feeling great about it. And one place where people are feeling that feeling lately? When they get the coronavirus vaccine. All over our great nation, over a million people a day are now getting the vaccine. Which, you know, still leaves most of us, speaking for myself, jealous and wondering what happens in those little rooms. Nurses are coming out of retirement, sometimes without pay, to volunteer and give us shots and try to save us all. Tobin Lowe, one of our editors here, his mom is one of those nurses. He's been doing vaccinations in California.
0: I want to ask you about the first person that you gave the vaccine to. Can you tell me that story?
4: Um, remind me a little bit, because I've been doing this now for...
0: <laughs> mom, it was Dad. Oh, oh. You
4: gave Dad... <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah, right. So, um, <laughs> boy. So,
0: tell me about vaccinating dad.
4: <laughs> okay. I had not given a vaccine in 15 years. And so he was my first uh, vaccine after 15 years. Uh, he was a good sport about it, and it, it all went well.
0: Was there a kiss afterwards, or is that unprofessional?
4: You know, we were in a work setting, and so, uh, you know, it was all business.
1: It's not always all business. Feelings do bubble up to the surface. One of our producers, David Kestenbaum, was curious about what happens when people get the shots. He talked to nurses who have been administering the vaccine, sometimes going through this kind of intense moment with total strangers, one after another.
0: Here's David. Iris Sanchez heard they were looking for nurses to volunteer in Texas in an email, I don't think she even finished reading it.
5: Oh my God, I got so excited because I know that these spots fill up really, really fast. So I just like kept looking and my hands were shaking like, where's the link? Where's the link? I want to beat everybody to it. I don't, I don't want to get left out. So
0: That's how people describe signing up to get the vaccine.
5: <laughs> That's, you know what? Yeah, you're right. The spots fill up pretty fast. So like there's this rush of like, I want to be the first one to sign up for it.
0: Iris sits at vaccination station number two or number 10, varies, wherever they put her that day. She's in the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, this huge stadium where the Spurs used to play. I imagine them down on the court, but she's like, no, no, we're up in the hallway where you get your beer and nachos. That's where they're giving the vaccines, though somehow the word vaccine seems inadequate.
5: I call it the precious.
0: You call it the precious?
5: I call it the precious. So let me tell you about the precious. because everybody wants to know about the precious, I call it the precious. because It's just so precious. So you have people in the drawing room and what we call the pharmacy, and you know there's this black curtain and it's this pharmacy and you can't go in there. It's like the Wizard of Oz. And they, they have people actually drawing up the vaccines and they put them on a little tray and then they're covered with this uh, drape. And then they lift up the little drape and then you have all these little precious vaccines on there and you get to pick one and then you have to put it underneath the drape on your table. And so people would say, why are you hiding the vaccine? Like, why don't you want me to see it? And it's like, no, it's just, it's very light sensitive. So we have to keep it covered so it can be asleep until it's ready. And then I'll give you your vaccine. I said, but look, it's here. It's right there. You you are getting a vaccine today. (laughs)
0: Pfizer, for the record, says that once the vial's been thawed, it is okay to expose the vaccine to room light. People are nervous about getting vaccinated. Not because they don't want to be protected against a deadly disease. It's so much simpler. They don't like needles. Iris has a whole strategy for dealing with that.
5: You just tell them, don't look. Just don't look. And I talk to them. I'm like a little chatterbox. I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, we're done. And they're like, oh, (laughs) because I'm distracting them. So they they have, they're like, this woman won't shut up. But there is a reason for my madness. You just talk and you're distracting them because they're like, she's going to shut up when she's ready to give me the shot. So they're not expecting it. And then bam, there you go. It's done.
0: Iris volunteered to do this. She's not getting paid. Her full-time job is in endocrinology. So a lot of patients with diabetes. It's been a rough year. One of her favorite patients died from COVID. In this moment, when people get the shot, It can be intense. She only spends a few minutes with each person. But people tell you stuff.
5: Uh, I had this young man. He was in his 40s. And he came in for the vaccine. And this was uh, on a Tuesday. And he said, you know, my my parents are really happy that I'm here. Because my brother just died on Friday from COVID. He, he, He didn't make it. So my parents were just so sad and they're just happy that I'm here because they don't want to lose their second child because if I die, then they don't have any more children. That was sad. (laughs) That was really sad. Oh my God. In the 40s, gosh, yeah.
0: The man told Iris it was his parents who had actually gone online to sign up, but they could only get one appointment and they decided he should have it. They thought it was more important that he get the shot. He qualified because he had an underlying medical condition. The guy showed Iris a picture of him and his brother. He'd made it the home screen on his phone. Tobin's mom, who you heard earlier, Vivian Lowe, told this story about a different family.
4: So I had this woman who came in, who brought her mom in, and um I looked at her health questionnaire and she had answered no to everything that she never had a, a allergic reaction you know she wasn't on any immunosuppressants all the answers were no and so I said great you know let's let's give you your shot and so um I you know actually delivered the vaccine and as I was a- already injecting it into her mom's arm her mom said Well, I'm glad that's over because, man, I had a really bad reaction to uh, that flu vaccine last, you know.
6: Oh, no. And
4: I I said, you had an allergic an anaphylactic reaction? I said, were you hospitalized? Oh, yeah, you know. And then the daughter just jumped right in and said, Mom, it's fine. You were fine. This is irrelevant information. You needed this vaccine. You got this vaccine. The daughter was so intent on protecting her mom.
0: Iris has had uncomfortable situations, too. Like this one guy had gone online, managed to get an appointment. But he wasn't diabetic, he didn't have a heart condition, wasn't over 65. If there's any reason she can find to legitimately give someone a shot, she wants to. And sometimes she gets people in by asking their height and weight to see if their BMI is 30 or over. His was 29.5. She rounded up.
5: So in his case, he was obese. He wasn't overweight. He was obese. So that's what qualified him for the vaccine. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend you, you know, but you qualify. And they're like, it's OK. I'm, for once, I'm happy to be overweight because that means I can get the vaccine.
0: There can be an intimacy to this moment of getting the shot. I think because there's a way in which getting the shot is like passing through a portal out of this awful year. This other nurse, Amy Caramore in New York, told me she feels that way with every single shot.
7: You know, I say, are you ready? I always say, are you ready? Um, which is a little bit, which isn't just about like, are you ready for me to put like a needle in your arm? But is more about like, are you ready for this?
0: It's like, are you ready for the new world?
7: Yeah. Are so you, yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Are you ready for something different? And here we go.
0: We actually have a recording of someone getting a shot that kind of captures this. Yep. We put a mic on Tobin's mom out in California. This man, James, gets sent to her. Yeah. He'd gotten their way before his appointment. I they know. go over the paperwork. Date of birth, he's 82. Old, he says.
4: All right, just relax this song. There All you right. go. You're great. You've gotten flu shots before?
8: Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah, so this is just like that.
5: Uh-huh.
1: That's it. I'm glad it's
7: over. <laughs> oh, boy. Had a, a young woman, and as I was going over the instructions, you know, as I was going over the consent, she just burst into tears.
0: Again, Amy in New York.
7: And. I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, are you okay? And, you know, and, um, she just said, you know, I just, am having a lot of feelings. Like I've just been so worried. It's like the, you know, the tension has been so taut, it's been so tight and, and everybody's been surviving with that. And then I, we sit down in this moment together and it's like, snap, you know, but it's, it's a big force. It's like, if you let go before, then you know, everything was going to fall apart. The whole world was going to fall apart. And if you let go right now in this room, you know, maybe not.
0: All the vaccinations end the same way, she says. After people get their shot, they have to go to an observation area just to make sure they don't have an allergic reaction.
7: It's funny because you're walking in, you know, I walk my person, right? Because I'm not going to just send them down the hall and say, like, good luck now, you know, <laughs> we just did this big thing. So I walk yeah. my person to there and... uh They go, usually a big smiley person at this point, right? Because they're like, they survived the moment, you know? Um, And they go walk into a room, and then the room is just a bunch of people sitting six feet apart, you know, texting on their phones.
0: Welcome to the afterlife.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's exactly as you remember it. Yeah, Yeah, a bunch of people sitting On on their phones texting.
0: We really should change that, she says. Fill the room with balloons? Something.
1: David Kestenbaum, is senior editor of our show. Back to Penny for your non-thoughts. We were talking uh, here at the show about the theme of today's program, What Lies Beneath the Surface. One of our producers, Lily Sullivan, mentioned something that a bunch of us know quite well that she wonders what happens beneath the surface in the mind of one of her friends who also works here at the radio show. Over the years, she has talked to a number of us on staff about this. She's read articles trying to better understand. And finally, just this past week, once and for all, she tried to get to the bottom of it. Here's Lily.
9: Diane and I have worked together for four years. We started at the show at the same time. We were the junior staffers. And we became the kind of work friends where... We had neighboring offices, so we'd overhear everything through the walls. We'd go into each other's offices, close the doors, pull down the blinds, and talk. We'd always sit on the ground because, I don't know, chairs felt weirdly formal. And then one day she told me this thing. She said, I don't introspect. Hardly ever. Hardly at all. Meaning she spends almost no time looking inward. She doesn't really think about herself, her thoughts, her feelings about the world. Almost ever. This got so deep in my head. To not introspect. I didn't even know that was possible. As if there's a menu somewhere of ways to be. And introspection is just an option that one could choose or not choose. I didn't even know there was a menu. And how could it be true? I would watch her confounded. Diane says insightful things. She's considerate. Always considerate, by the way. Exceedingly. And I'd think... How did she anticipate those needs? How did she have that insight if she doesn't look inside? I assumed we were misunderstanding each other. That she must introspect. She must reflect on all sorts of things. She just doesn't use the word introspection to describe it. Like we're probably doing the same thing. We just don't categorize it the same way. Diane says, no.
10: Well, since you started asking me about this, I've been thinking about it, you know. And, like, I knew we were going to talk about this. So, like, walking into the grocery store the other night, I was walking in and I was just like, what would I be thinking about if I were introspecting right now? (laughs) And I had no idea. I was like, what could you possibly think about besides, like, there's some red, you know, shopping baskets. I'm going to take a red shopping basket. (laughs) Oh, this is a spinach mix. Is it just spinach or is there kale? Like, that's literally all I going on <laughs> in my head. I can't imagine what else you could be thinking about. But I was like, I feel like I know if you were an introspective person, you could be like lost in your thoughts. But I just can't be in the grocery store.
9: Here's what I think about at the grocery store. I think there's a red shopping basket. Should I get a basket or a cart? I don't like the rickety ones. Can't imagine shopping for a big family. I wonder if I'll ever have a big family. That ship has probably sailed. Must be expensive. Why didn't my mom always ask the person bagging groceries to help her to her car? Whatever happened to Volvos? I bit that hole in the headrest of her Volvo when I was five. Or was I four? She was so sad. Why was I like that? Is that guy looking at me? Is he mad? What's he mad about? I wonder how much that cashier makes. Are people nice to her? Must take a long time to memorize all the codes to the produce so you don't need that sheet anymore. I'd be bad at it. Do people ask her if it's hard? Would she like that question or find it rude? A lot of my thoughts are just imagining other people's thoughts and feelings, all tangled up with my own. That's probably like 95% of what I think about. Diane says she doesn't do that. At all. And one of the reasons I believe her is that she remembers the moment that she first realized that her brain works this way. She told me that thinking about one's thoughts, or not thinking about them, she was 24 before she realized it was a thing at all. She was reading a book of essays by a doctor. There was a story about a
10: girl or young woman who almost died of flesh-eating bacteria from like walking on some grass. And I immediately started panicking that I was going to get flesh-eating bacteria also, which is, like, not how I usually operate at all, ever. Mm. And I burst into tears and was really upset about it. (laughs) And um, my ex was like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I was like, I just am right then. I'm going to die from flesh-eating bacteria. And also, my parents are going to die one day. (laughs) Like, it all just came rushing out. (laughs) And I was really upset about it, and he was like, oh, wow, like, you don't spend any time at all thinking about this usually, do you? And I was like, no, like, it's just something about reading this book made me realize that, like, I'm going to die one day and so are my parents and I don't feel good about it. (laughs) And he was like, oh, well, like, maybe if you were more introspective, like, you took a couple minutes every
9: now and then, you wouldn't end up, like, bursting in tears. After that, Diane would occasionally try to force herself to sit down and introspect. And I always felt hard, she says. Kind of fake. And boring. And let's just dispel this categorically. Diane is no dummy. She's incredibly focused. You can go to her with a big, complicated story, and she can hold the whole thing in her head, immediately get how everything's connected. She also happens to have a PhD in inorganic chemistry from Stanford, though she's not one to name drop. I asked Diane if we could try to do a rapid response game. I wrote up some of my burning questions. Just answer quickly, yes or no. Oh, fun. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Okay, here goes. If you see something, does it pull up other random associations and memories? Sometimes. Rarely. And then does that memory lead to other random memories that then start coursing through your head? No,
10: just if I, if I have one, it'll just be the one. It'll hang out there for a little bit. Okay.
9: Do you spend a lot of time feeling um just mildly guilty or mildly regretful about a thing you said a few minutes ago
10: No I don't hmm.
9: Um do you think about your opinions and why you have those opinions and whether you actually should have those opinions Oh wow Um
10: I feel like I don't really <laughs> This is not going to sound good but I don't think I have that many opinions (laughs) or if i do they're not strongly held
9: this did not help me get it it confirmed for me that she doesn't think about all the things i think about but i still didn't get what she thinks about instead what is going through her head and i understand how stonery this all sounds we tried to describe to each other our experiences of consciousness sorry everyone first me I think it feels more like like a washing machine, like of thoughts jumbled up and I'm like jumping from one thing to another, but it's just like all in there mixed together, going and going all the time. Um, does that feel familiar? Not at all.
10: <laughs> I think it sounds like you, but I don't think it sounds
9: like me. <sighs> okay, I feel like so... What? Can we, like, could you try to, like, think and, like, if you had to describe what it's like? Because when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, I wonder what appliance Diane would be. Like, if you were to think for a second about. Of what it feels like inside my head. Yeah. Do you have any sense of.
10: I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, I feel like, um, like a video camera. (laughs) that's just, like, pointing to different things in the world. And, like, it, like, goes in. Most of it doesn't stay very long and goes right back out.
9: Wow. Okay. And the thing that it's pointing at, is it pointing at thoughts in your head or is it pointing at actual things in the world?
10: Actual things in the world. Like, <laughs> very literally, like, like if my eyes were a camera.
9: <laughs> yeah. So the video – so do you just mean your eyes? <laughs> it's like um yeah, I think it's like
10: I'm taking I'm spend like 90% of my brain just taking in the inputs and uh wow, it's really um I mean even in like quiet moments, which I feel like I've had a ton of lately, I just end up like staring out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not thinking about anything. <laughs> I'm just observing the world around
9: me. Huh. Is it, like, is it nice? Like, what does it feel like? Um, I think before, before we started talking about all of this, I,
10: I thought it was bad. Like, I thought there was too much space in my head that was, like, going to waste or something. But now that we've been talking about it, like, it is nice to have room. I feel like it lets me, like, I feel generally sensitive to the world around me and to other people. And I think um, it's actually kind of nice that there's room to let the world in.
9: It was like, I had thought all humans were land creatures and that I'd kind of, more or less, understood our species. And then I found out that there are people who live in the ocean instead. And I know that I'll never live in the ocean. But now that Diane's explained it to me, put what's in her head into mine, I can imagine it. I spent the weekend just moving my eyes around my apartment, landing on different objects, just blinking. <laughs>
1: Lily Sullivan and Diane Wu are both producers on our show. Coming up, what well, lurks beneath the surface of a sunny California afternoon, if you have the kind of job that lets you see it, that's in a minute from Chicago Bubble Radio when our program continues. It's *This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today's program, What Lies Beneath. We have stories of stuff that is usually hidden from view coming to the surface. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, One If By Land, three F by C. So it's a conceit of a certain kind of story that in one day you can glimpse the entire world. This next story is kind of like that. Somebody catches a glimpse of something bigger in just three hours of a typical workday. Producer Dana Chivas tells the story.
11: A few weeks ago, I was calling around talking to paramedics and EMTs in California. At the time, COVID cases had skyrocketed, and I wanted to see how the first responders were doing. I talked to this one guy, Sam Gebler. He's a firefighter and paramedic in San Francisco. And he told me this story. It actually happened back in August. All in one day. One of those perfect sunny days. Tons of people were outside that afternoon, enjoying the weather. And Sam was looking down at a woman who was caught on a cliff. Where was the woman?
8: She was uh, probably 250 feet down the cliff. Uh, And it was kind of one of those things where uh, where she was standing, it wasn't uh, super steep. She could kind of stand and balance, but there's no way to get down there. Honestly, to this day, I don't know how she made it down that far in that spot. It just didn't make any sense. And she had some some scrapes and bruises on her. So I'm assuming she fell at some point Mm -hmm. and just happened. Instead of rolling down the cliff into the water, she rolled onto this, uh, you know, fairly flat spot with a rock to hold on to, which wow. is incredibly lucky because with her in, in that state, there's no way she would have survived if she went into the water.
11: How far down was the water from, her, from where she was?
8: Probably okay. another 50 feet.
11: The woman looked fairly young, late 20s, early 30s. And she was in a state, like maybe she'd hit her head or she was intoxicated. It wasn't clear. She wasn't answering questions. Sam's fire station covers an area of the city that includes beaches, Golden Gate Park, and these cliffs, west of the Golden Gate Bridge, where people go hiking. So Sam and another firefighter put on face masks and harnesses, clipped into ropes, and lowered themselves down to her. When they got there, the woman was clearly in distress, but not because she was stuck on the side of a cliff.
8: She, I remember her saying a lot about how, uh, Covid has taken everything from her, and this disease is messing with her mind, and she doesn't know what to do, and just being so overwhelmed at uh, at whatever. I didn't ever get you know specifics of what she was doing before Covid or or what her life was like, but she just kept saying, you know, this disease is messing with me. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have any reason to live. Like just all this crazy stuff, and Uh you're like. You know, in your mind, you're like, man, I, I mean, this is, this is crazy what it's doing to people.
11: They put her in a harness and clipped her into the ropes. The rescuers up above started hauling the three of them back up the incline. But the woman was grabbing onto the rope, which is the intuitive thing to do when you're hanging off the side of a cliff. But it's actually really dangerous. The thing you're supposed to do is lean back, trust your harness and the ropes to hold you, and let your rescuers haul you back up. She wasn't doing that, and she wasn't in the right state of mind.
8: And so you're you're like fighting this person to not climb up the rope, but to also walk their legs up the cliff. It's
11: right.
8: It's incredibly difficult with someone who isn't really able to follow commands. I mean, you're you're basically like a therapist at the edge of a cliff on a 250 <laughs> foot cliff, like trying to treat this person enough to get her up the cliff without getting yourself hurt. I mean, it's, it's oh really. God. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. There were multiple times when I was getting frustrated and I just needed to like stop and calm myself down and look back and like, oh, wow, that looks really cool. And then, <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. Stop talking about that. We're going to do one foot in front of the other now.
11: <laughs> one foot in front of the other. Trust your rescuers or you might fall backwards off a cliff. It feels applicable to all of us right now trying to make it through this pandemic. It worked for Sam and this woman. With a lot of effort, they made it back up the slope. They put the woman into an ambulance and started driving back to the firehouse.
8: And that's when uh, we hear on the radio, stand by for the surf rescue.
11: Someone had spotted three kids in the water at a beach nearby. They seemed like they were in trouble. The currents at that beach are really strong. They can be deceptive.
8: So he flips a U-turn on the street and we start going back to the beach. So, you know, I'm, I'm peeling off my harness and dirty clothes and trying to get into my wetsuit. And I don't know if you've ever gotten into a wetsuit, but it's, it's kind of difficult, especially when you're sweaty, it's sticky, and you're in the back of a fire engine that's driving code three to the beach. It's, it's, <laughs> it's quite the spectacle. So we, we show up and it's just a sea of people. I've never seen this many people at the beach before.
11: It's a nice day during a pandemic. There's nothing else to do but go outside. Sam told me when paramedics see crowds like that, they know they're going to have a busy day. The road is high above the beach, and from there, Sam can see three little dots in the water. He makes a mental note of where they are. Then he and about seven or eight other firefighters hop into the back of a special pickup truck for surf rescues. It's got life-saving equipment like surfboards on it. And they drive down to the beach. Sam heads straight into the water, but from there, he can't see the kids anymore. The waves are too high. So he starts swimming in the direction of where he'd seen them from above.
8: I, I didn't realize that, that as I was getting into the water, that my captain, who had gone to a higher uh, perch, was screaming at us to not go in the water. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't realize that like he was yelling at us. And luckily I didn't hear him because I might not yeah. have gone. And why,
11: why was he saying don't go in the water, though?
8: He saw how far out that the, uh, the people had gotten sucked out into oh. the channel and he thought it was too dangerous for us to I see to go out there. It was it was too far of a swim for us. Um, so I swim out there and um, and the first person uh, that I see is this kid who looks like 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. And he's bobbing up and down by the rocks. Uh, looked like he was trying to get out. And I'm like, hey, are you okay? And he said, oh, I'm stuck. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. grab onto this. We throw him a little floaty device that we swim with, uh, like, like the things you see on Baywatch, you know, that the okay. lifeguards carry. Yeah, yeah. So so we throw him the device and uh, pull him away from the rocks. And, and I'm like, hey, uh, what happened? And he's like, oh, these two girls were in and I, and I tried to get in to help him out. And I was like, oh, so there are two more people. He's like, yeah. I was like, okay, where'd they go? And he's like, they went that way. So he just Which pointed did out, he point? He pointed to the open ocean, and I couldn't see shit. Oh. <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, okay. Now I'm like calculating in my mind, you know, I can't see where these people are. I've got one patient with me. Um, you know, I can't just leave him. What do I do?
11: Two other rescuers swim up at that moment and take over. They're maybe a hundred yards out at this point. Sam starts swimming into the open ocean. He's swimming and swimming and swimming. He's getting tired, a little scared. And now
8: I'm like, man, I'm getting pretty far out here (laughs) and thinking about trying to make it back in. Uh, And then I see one of my coworkers who is uh, a really good surfer and a good swimmer and he's booking it on this uh, surfboard. And uh, I figured obviously he can see something that I can't. And I just changed my angle to that line. It was him and another guy out there. And we all kind of get out there and they found the two girls. So one of them uh, was, was in the water still with her head above water. She was treading water okay. And the other one wasn't there anymore. And one of them reached down and grabbed her as she was sinking underwater. it's It's a very weird situation because you don't you don't know how long she's been under. Um, so you just have this, like, you know, this fear, not fear, but this picture in your head of of how bad it could be.
11: The girl's lips were blue. She wasn't breathing, wasn't conscious,
8: and we pull her onto the board we have this technique where, you know, we flip them onto the board and so she's out of the water. She's on the surfboard, the rescue board, and uh, she's not breathing. We do some, you know, trying to do CPR in the water where you're just Jeez. treading water is, is ridiculous. It's it's not very effective.
11: So you but, and your friend, you and your friend are in the water and she's on the board and you're doing CPR from the water?
8: Yeah, we're trying. Whoa. So it's, you know, it's really a, a team effort on having people stabilize the board while other people are trying to bob up and push down on CPR and then bob back down under the water. I mean, you're oh almost my like God. trying to propel yourself up out of the water to try and you know, get some leverage and, and do some effective CPR.
11: CPR, after all, involves pressing down hard on someone's chest. But they're not above her. They're in the water next to the surfboard, bobbing up and down
8: you're out in the middle of the ocean not the middle of the ocean but you're way way far away from the shore like you can't see the shore anymore and you're focused on the patient you're like all right how do i get this person to breathe again and somehow she just started uh, you know coughing up coughing up all that water and i just remember like the the heaving the just the whole like all the muscles just contracting and and just the disgusting heaving and coughing of, mm. of all this water coming up up out of her mouth and it and you know you're just like, holy shit. Mm. <laughs> this is this is real.
11: So now both girls are on surfboards. Sam says they were probably a thousand yards out from the shore at that point. The current pulling them further and further from shore.
8: You know, this is like something I'll never forget. Just sitting in the water there and having this this person who I don't know vigorously cough into my face and I don't have a mask on and she doesn't have a mask on because we're in the ocean. There's no mask in the ocean. Uh, And I just remember thinking, man, I really hope she doesn't have COVID. (laughs) 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 And you know, it's like, there's so many other things to be thinking about right now. Like, you know, this person almost drowned and we're still in a dangerous position. We're getting sucked out into the shipping lane I can't see the the beach anymore. I don't know where we are. I don't know who's gonna come get us. Oh my uh, God, yeah. I try not to get eaten by a shark. I, I don't know. Right. There's all literally these- right. Like there are sharks there. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I mean, there's a ton of sharks out there, especially yeah. in deep water where we're getting sucked out to. And so I'm just like, just amazed at myself thinking about COVID in a situation like this. You know. never forget looking looking over to my coworker, and we just kind of looked at each other as she's coughing in our face and I could see it all over his face too and we just had that like that non-verbal communication where we're both like oh
11: damn I can't imagine anything that's more pandemic 2020 than being swept out to sea in shark infested water and still not being able to escape the anxiety of COVID
8: seriously I mean, it's like we've had plenty of surf rescues and cliff rescues before, but this COVID thing is is like new. And and it's, you know, the difficulty of calls and the stress of calls is much higher than normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you could have had 30 calls a year ago and it would be less stressful than having 15 calls in, in this new
11: COVID era. The kids were okay, by the way, and Sam didn't get COVID. But for so many of us, the specter of COVID is always peering over our shoulders, intensifying everything we do. From the most extreme activities, a surf rescue, a cliff rescue, to the most banal, grocery shopping, a teeth cleaning. That anxiety is the ether we exist in now. There is one thing that's given Sam some comfort recently. The vaccine. A few weeks ago, he had his second dose. He said it lifted a lot of stress for him. Now he only has to deal with fires, sharks, cliffs, people who've stopped breathing. You know, regular work stuff.
1: Dana Chivas is one of the producers of our show. Act four, boiling under. So lots of things can go unspoken between family members, sometimes for years sometimes forever. And we had this idea that it would be interesting to do a story where a parent talks to their grown-up kid about something the parent wanted to talk about for a while, but never had. And we recorded a couple of these with different families, and the one that was the most interesting was this one.
12: This is weirdly... I'm, I'm like, very uh, nervous about this, Dad.
1: Yeah, I am, too, to a degree. This is Chris Gethard and his dad, Ken Gethard.
12: Because you and I don't really, like... We have a really good relationship. We don't, like, sit down and have personal
1: conversations <laughs> that often, though. <laughs> Chris has been on a show now and then. He's a comedian. And his father wanted to talk to Chris about Chris's depression. Chris has depression. He's talked about it on stage and in his podcast. He did a one-man show on HBO about it, which makes his dad feel bad. Probably because Chris is talking publicly about stuff that the two of them have never really discussed. Chris didn't reveal his depression to his parents till he was in his early 20s and had an incident where he nearly died and then a friend more or less forced him to tell his family. And his dad had questions about all that. Chris uh, came into the studio having no idea what his dad wanted to ask about. And they sat down. And, I don't know, maybe we should have expected this. His dad didn't just jump right in with the stuff that he wanted to talk about. That was too heavy.
6: Well, the first one's actually a question from Mom. Oh, Okay. Do you pray?
1: Ken asked Chris about pro wrestling. He asked about sports.
6: And I'm just, you know, why are you... Why are you such an NBA fan rather than a pro baseball fan?
1: You talked about their old neighborhood in New Jersey. You, Ken told you, Chris how much he hates young celebrity young endorsements. Would Chris ever do a celebrity she endorsement? Would Chris ever do, a sex, sex do a, a sex scene in a movie? A oh, nude yeah, scene in a movie? <laughs> this continued <laughs> for an hour. And then finally...
6: Hey, listen, there's a couple questions I definitely do want to hit, so let's go to them. I don't want to run out of time. Sure. So, um,
1: And then Ken brought up Chris's depression. He wanted to know why Chris took so long to tell his parents about it.
6: Well, you know, when uh, you finally told Mom, and that was, what, towards the end of college? Yeah. I guess
12: that was. Yeah, I think that was, yeah.
6: Absolutely floored us. I mean, we had zero clue. Yeah. You know, and on one hand, we're like, the guilt, you know, we got to help protect you. Why couldn't we you know, see this, you know? But on the other hand, it's like, you know, why didn't he come to us? Even now you're like that, Chris. You know, there was something on the web a couple years ago. was something, you know, this is what I look like on a bad day, you know, or when I'm feeling depressed. yeah. And, and you said something to the effect, you know, you know, I'll tell my wife, I'll tell my brother, but I'll never let my parents see me like this. Yeah. And, you know, and that was, you know, after we've known. So I just, you know, even then, now it's like sticking out there. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know. I guess it would make
12: me feel like I was like uh, letting you guys down in some way or failing in some way. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but
6: you'd be—you know—we'd be, you know, be that mom and I would be the first two there to help you and do whatever it took to—I
12: know—protect you. I don't know why I've never been comfortable with you guys seeing me that or like that are knowing knowing that side of me so well. But I just felt like it was a thing to hide. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. Because you guys did. As soon as I told you, it was like everyone went into this mode where I was so supported and i had always assumed that if i ever told anybody about it i was going to be on my own whereas when i kind of hit rock bottom and started talking to you guys about it it was like instantaneously the safest i ever felt
6: yeah yeah well i'm glad you felt that way but you know i hope you understand where i'm coming from on this yeah
12: no i wish i talked to you guys about it sooner i wish
6: Uh, and you you did a fantastic job of hiding it from mom and i which I'll have all amounts of guilt over. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, my don't dying day. you don't
12: have to have any guilt over no. that. I mean, I was so good at hiding it. So good at hiding it. And I don't know why. I don't know why I never let you and mom know about that. It's just not my instinct. My instinct is that that's yeah. going to worry you guys so much and you're going to you're gonna have to sit around and and be scared about me and I don't want you doing that. And I always figured maybe... I could push through it or it would pass or even I felt like maybe I'm just a moody kid and... uh
6: Yeah, if you're feeling bad, you need help and stuff like that, Chris, you know, I would like you to come to us at any point in time but I, 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 I'm not a professional. I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know if I'm making sense. It's... I want to be there but, but I don't want to tell you something wrong either. Yeah. yeah. That's always in the back of my head. It's like... Oh God! If he comes to me, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> am I gonna tell him something, and you know, all of a sudden he's gonna be worse, you know? Yeah, I'm like scared. I don't, I don't think I want you coming to me, Dad. I'm, you know, I'm upset. I need you to talk me. I wouldn't know what to say, you know. That that's what you have a professional for, you, you know. And it's uh, does that make sense <laughs> anywhere there? Yeah. No, because I know that. I know
12: that's the truth. I know that's the truth. Like, I know you're not the guy <laughs> to talk about that. It's part of what made it very hard to say it. But it doesn't... I think I let that fear make me not talk to you about it. Whereas what really happened is exactly what I should have known you would have done, which was, you're not the guy to talk about it, but you're certainly going to make sure... That I find I'm the person. i are gonna get you to the right. You're gonna person. get me there. Yeah. You're, you're gonna. I mean, that's that's one of the things I regret the most. Is like, you're not the guy who you, you were never. You were never gonna be the guy who I could come to and say, "Dad, I'm really sad, and I don't know why." You weren't gonna know what to say, but I should have given. I should have given a lot more credit to knowing you were gonna run through a wall to get me where I needed to go.
6: Yeah.
1: Chris Gethard and his dad, Ken Gethard. Thanks to them for agreeing to have this conversation on tape. The story first ran on our show a few years back. Chris is the host of the long-running podcast, Beautiful Anonymous.
6: Play. Better have your bag of money when the piper comes for pay.
12: Just under the surface, never far away.
1: Our program was produced today by Aviva de Cornfeld. People who put our show together today include Bimatawuni, Ona Baker, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Dan Chivas, John Colt, Tobin Lowe, Stone Nelson, Catherine Marimondo, Ari Sapper, Lisa Ship, Lara Sturcheski, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Stratala, Tierney, and Diane Wu, Managing Editor Sarah Abdurrahman Senior Editor David Kestenbaum, our executive editor Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Gabriela Munoz, Christopher Brown, and the folks at El Camino Hospital for letting us record vaccinations. Vicki Kapper, Adam Van Gerpen, Dan Casey, Carissa Reinek, and Chuck Leong. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. You can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's lists of favorite shows, videos we made over the year, links to our TV program, tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. And as always, show program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, in his early career, he was a writer in The Flintstones. They were scripting some lines from Bam Bam one day, and one of the other writers said, "Hey, how about this? Bam Bam, Bam Bam Bam, Bam Bam, Bam 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 Bam." Tori couldn't help himself, adding his little stamp to it.
5: And then Bam, there you go, it's done.
1: I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.
8: The surface.